Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about one of the most infamous and humiliating military conflicts that Australia ever involved itself in the Great Emu War. This is a this is a topic that has been sent in by many, many alert listeners, but uh, the very first to suggest it was none other than Ray Walkinshaw, an old an old mate of mine who's been he's been following the podcast since its beginning. So good on you, Ray. And uh, and thank you very much for messaging me that one week when I uploaded the, the wrong file. So yeah, oops, thanks <laughs> thanks for thanks for that. Anyway, the Great Emu War. In nineteen thirty two, the Australian Army deployed a detachment of artillery to fight the scourge of the Western Australian wheat belt, that loathsome, hopped-up avian, the dreaded emu. Machine guns and thousands of rounds were sent off in the hands of Australia's finest artillerymen, who were hell-bent on freeing the poor people of Campion from the ravages and the terror of the marauding emus, delivering red-hot Australian justice to these foul beasts. And... They failed completely and were forced to retreat and the emus won the day and we've never really quite lived it down as a nation, to be honest. I will say this. I will say this. Australia, traditionally, is pretty bloody good at war. Pretty bloody good at war internationally. We, we've, our overall score at the moment is eight wins, one loss and a draw since the country was founded in 1901. So, we, you know, we're, we're, we're doing pretty well on that front. But is it not said, my friends that the greatest enemy comes from within. And despite our boys, you know, kicking in the back teeth of those blasted bloody Huns in the First World War, they returned home to face a yet more fearsome foe on the wheat fields of Western Australia. And look, we've got to cop it. Losing a war to overgrown, flightless, stupid, bloody long-necked chickens isn't something that we as a nation are you know, particularly proud of, but it is something that we have to acknowledge as a very dark time in our nation's otherwise proud military history. Anyway, no sense beating about the bush. Let's get into it, have a chat about this deplorable chapter of Australian history. It is time to face facts and own up to one of our greatest, uh, our country's greatest military failures. We're going all the way back, all the way back to uh, 1918 and 1919 here with the end of the First World War in November 1918. Now, over 400,000 Australian troops had been deployed across the world in the name of the British Empire and, tragically, over 60,000 of them never returned. The poor bastards, lest we forget, you know, stuck in cold and miserable Europe forever they are, and, you know, very, very sad loss and a sad, a sad sacrifice that uh, that our country made for, for the sake of a war that wasn't really ours to fight, to be honest, but as, you know, part of the British Empire, it, we didn't have much of a choice. Anyway, for those who did return, the Australian government instituted a program to, uh, to settle these returned soldiers on, on great big plots of land out in the country. Where, uh, where they would then work as farmers. And this whole scheme, was, was, it was met with varying levels of success, but the long and the short of it was that 23,000 returned soldiers were all given an average of 100 acres each to start farms on. So obviously the, you know, the broad majority of soldiers went back to their, their normal lives as they had you know, whatever they'd had before the war, but a lot of soldiers, 23,000 of these soldiers, they started anew as, as farmers out in the Australian bush, basically. And just shy of 1,100 of these farms were set up in Western Australia, out in an area known as the Wheat Belt. It's uh, in the southwest corner of the country surrounding Perth. And there, these farmers grew, well, 
you know, wheat, obviously. You don't move to a place known as the bloody wheat belt and start planting rice, do you? That doesn't make any sense at all. So these ex-soldiers, they've set up their farms and off they go, bloody putting on those, you know, silly hats and chewing on bits of straw and, I don't know, doing whatever else it is that you do when you're a farmer. I'm, a, I'm well and truly a raving inner-city inner lunatic, so I don't bloody know, do I? But... As we get through the 20s and the Great Depression looms at the end of the decade, the government made efforts to increase wheat production in order to try to, uh, you know, tackle the, the, the economic circumstances of the time. These poor old farmers, they're having an absolute shocker. They're having an absolute shocker of a time they are. The government is pressuring them to step up production with, you know, unkept promises and subsidies that they're not paying and all sorts of stuff. The arse has fallen out of the wheat market and, you know, prices are in the poop. And now to make things worse... A new threat, not just the great, not just the Great Depression. A new threat is looming large on the horizon here. In 1932, migrating flocks of emus began to rampage across the farmland throughout the area surrounding the town of Campion in Western Australia, a town which it won't surprise you to learn does not exist anymore. Not after the terrible ravages of the Great. Emu War. After breeding season uh, season each year, emus migrate towards the coast. And in 1932, this brought a, f- a flock of around 20,000 of them to the region around Lake Campion. Now, these emus, they can't believe their luck when they cruise through this area from, you know, from Chandler to, to Walgulan. They have bloody struck gold here. Rather than emus having to, you know, search for food or water, they're saying to themselves, Bloody hell, these bloody dumb idiot humans, they've been nice enough to grow field after field of you know, delicious wheat just for us. And they've even gathered great big pools of water for us to drink from. You know, bloody nice of them, eh, isn't it? So these big bastard emus, they are absolutely going to town on the wheat crops. They are stuffing their stupid gobs with all the wheat they could eat, not to mention trampling and damaging the rest of the crops and busting through fences that were meant to keep rabbits out. Absolute total nightmare scenario for the farmers who are already struggling with all, you know, the Great Depression business, the price of wheat. Now there's emus and rabbits cutting about and wrecking their crops as well. Terrible time. Now, you'll remember that all of these farmers were ex-soldiers, and perhaps they had a rather militaristic point of view when it comes to, you know, solving problems like this, which goes some way in explaining the fact that when they complained to the government about the EMU problem, and when a group of ex-soldier farmers went to meet with government officials, they set up a meeting with the Minister of Defence, rather than, you know, the Minister of Agriculture or something sensible like that. Sir George Pierce was the Minister of Defence at the time, and he met with these farmers, he heard all about their problems, and he said, oh, boys, look, I'm sorry, you know, it sounds bloody awful, you poor bastards having to deal with these bloody emus, it is no good at all. But then the farmers, they made their proposal as to how they wanted the government to deal with the emus. Check this out. As all of these farmers had served in, uh, as soldiers in the First World War, and, and as a result, they all had first-hand experience of the effectiveness of machine guns, during this meeting with Pierce, these farmers suggested that the government deploy the army with machine guns in order to quite literally combat the thousands of rogue emus running roughshod through the fields. And, unbelievably, Pierce listens to them pitch this idea and he says, boys, you've bloody done it. What a ripper idea. Bloody legend. Let's do it. It'll be a great bit of target practice for those army blokes anyway. Let's make this happen. What an idea. So, Pierce, after hearing this this idea and, and deciding that the best way to deal with the emu population was by sending in the actual factual literal army 
he authorizes the deployment of two machine guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. He made a deal with the farmers that they had to feed and put up the artillerymen, as well as pay for the rounds that they used, and, and considered the whole thing a big win for him. Uh, again, one of the reasons he sighed in having made this decision uh, was that it would be good target practice, good training for the artillery, bloody weird bit of training, but, you know, there you go. But another reason was the federal government wanted to be seen as, as, as actively helping people in Western Australia as there was a growing secessionist movement at the time. In fact, the very next year, in 1933, there was actually a referendum in which a majority of Western Australians voted to leave the Commonwealth of Australia and establish their own nation. And despite this referendum succeeding, a majority of people voted for you know, voted yes and said, yep, let's get out of here. The succession obviously never, never took place. Western Australia to this day is still part of Australia. Um, and the reason for that is it required approval from both the federal government in Canberra and, ridiculously, the British Parliament in Westminster, and it gained neither. So, you know, sorry, Western Australia, I guess you, you, you're bloody stuck with us. But, you know, thanks for all the money you make all of us by digging stuff out of the ground so we can sell it. Really appreciate that. Good on you, mate. Anyway. In October 1932, Pierce deploys Major G.P.W. Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery, and under his command is the entire force that has been sent to war to deal with the EMU threat. This is a grand total of two soldiers, Sergeant S. McMurray and Gunner J. O'Halloran, both of whom had a Lewis gun each. This brave detachment of three of Australia's finest make their way out to the Campion region, but despite their best efforts, the beginning of the war is delayed by rain. Like a bloody cricket match, mate. This rainfall prevents the soldiers from getting underway until the 2nd of, October, uh, 2nd of November, and to make things worse, right... The rain has scattered the emus over a much larger area than they'd been before, so the enemy was now spread out and had increased territorial holdings, a grim beginning to the conflict, to be sure. But nonetheless, on the 2nd of November, our brave heroes, they sallied forth with their enormous machine guns, ready to rain hellfire on these pestilential birds and show them the true meaning of Australian military might. The soldiers were instructed to collect the skins and the feathers of the emus so as to make hats for light, light horsemen. And so think of that, an army nobly dressed in the skins of its vanquished foes, truly a terrifying sight to behold, and pretty bloody metal as well, I would say. Anyway, a detachment of the enemy, 50 or so in number, was spotted by Major Meredith and his men, and so they attempted to bear down on them and bring them in range of their guns. The emus, however, crafty in the arts of war, performed a deft and agile manoeuvre that demonstrated the depth of their preparation and mastery of battlefield tactics. They moved slightly further away from the guns so as to remain out of range. I mean, the speed of the emus baffled our boys, as did their manoeuvrability on the battlefield. These gangly feathered freaks are off like a shot. They're off at the first sight of danger. They're, you know, speeding away like a rat up a drainpipe there. And the farmers then attempted to corral them back towards the guns, but the emus pulled off another tactically outstanding move. They split up into small groups and ran away from the farmers. I mean, truly, a, a cunning and devious foe. Major Meredith and his men were being outfoxed at every turn. But all the same, these red-blooded Australian heroes, they gave chase to the emus, and after bringing them, bring some of them at least, in range of the guns, they opened fire. And they managed to kill a number of the birds, according to reports. That is the actual quote. In quotes, a number. I wasn't able to find out what that number was, and it, of course it is possible that the number 
could have just actually been zero, as that technically wouldn't have been a lie. But gladly for the cause of truth, uh, truth and justice, there were definitely some confirmed kills by the end of the day. Again, according to those reports, perhaps a dozen of these repugnant avians met their end that day, but also perhaps less, I suppose. But then again, also, perhaps it was a great many more. Who knows? Still... The day of fighting against these fiendishly clever birds and their advanced evasive tactics had actually given Major Meredith the experience he needed in order to outmaneuver the enemy. Because on the 4th of November, the 4th of November, the very next day, the good Major, he set a trap for the emus. He laid in ambush with his two gunners as over a thousand of these dim-witted budget-mode ostriches made their way towards a dam. Silent as the grave, the artillerymen, they, they lay in wait until the emus were at close range and then, swift as the wind, they began the attack with the emus unable to escape the hail of bullets that ripped out from the ambush less than 100 metres away from them, except most of them were actually able to escape after all because the guns jammed up almost immediately. Of the, uh, of the thousand or so emus that had been ambushed, a grand total of 12 were slain, and the others fled at top speed and escaped before the guns could be reloaded and redeployed. Not totally the result we were after, really, but hey, listen, a win is a win, right? And technically, it's a victory when the other side flees the battlefield, right? So we'll take what we can get at this stage. But of course, the cunning birds hid themselves away for the rest of the day, and no more of them were killed as they disappeared into the surrounding environment for the rest of the day there. But in the coming days, things... Well, actually, things didn't really change all that much. The emus, they relied on their speed and their agility to evade the, you know, slower, lumbering artillerymen, weighed down as they were with their hefty Lewis guns. So Meredith, he shifted his platoon, probably a bit of a stretch, actually, to call these blokes a platoon, but let's just go with it. He shifted them to the south uh, to seek a more favourable position from which to continue his noble campaign. But by the 7th of November, four days into this desperate conflict, the, the emus... They seem to have adapted to the Australian Army's tactics here, because according to an Army report, and this is this is a verbatim uh, uh, transcript of uh, of what was written about the behaviour of the emus during uh, during this time here. So check this out. This is exactly what was written here. <clears throat> Each pack seems to have its own leader now, a big black plumed bird which which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. Imagine that. Emu captains were standing sentinel while their underlings ravaged through the wheat fields, burning and pillaging and salting the earth in a completely figurative sense. How terrible. But never, never had the Australian army had to fight such a hard-fought and critical battle on home turf, and these stupid bloody emu pricks were running rings around our boys, the absolute bastards. Major Meredith, he maintained his composure, however, he did everything he could to keep morale up amongst the troops, all two of them, as he continued to explore a wide range of tactical options so as to teach these emus a sharp lesson about crossing the Australian army. Meredith mounted one of the Lewis guns onto a vehicle, hoping to match the speed of the emus as they fled across the fields. But even this, even this wasn't enough, as these idiotic birds are very easily able to run at over 50 kilometres an hour and outstrip the army's truck with ease, I would say, with, with the greatest of ease. What's more, driving across the field was so bumpy and so rough that the gunner manning the Lewis gun wasn't anywhere near being able to aim properly. So once again, the emus kind of, yeah, absolutely pulled our pants down. Yeah, once again. So by now, 
this drawn-out, exhausting conflict was approaching an endpoint. Try as they might, the forces of good in this world had met their match. The repugnant avians enjoyed their wicked triumph as, on the 8th of November, a full retreat was ordered by the Australian army. The forces of evil had won the day, and under a black cloud of shame and humiliation, our boys had to pack up the Lewis guns and withdraw. Their heads hung low after having been beaten by an animal that was years later found to be one of the stupidest birds on earth. I mean, look, being outsmarted by a bird is bad enough, but when some ornithological nerd in a lab coat announced the results of a study that that, that was emus are like really, really bloody dumb, even for birds. Jeez, that that is that has really, really got a sting. Anyway. After the retreat, Meredith lodged a report about the affair which discussed at length just how worthy the the emus were as a military enemy. Here's what he said in his report. He said this. If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. One of the soldiers also, I like this one a lot, one of the soldiers also reported a stunning insight into the great physical hardiness of the emus, who who seem to actually be able to shrug off glancing injuries sustained from machine gun fire, which is no small feat, but this is what one of the other soldiers said. There's only one way to kill an emu. Shoot him through the back of the head when his mouth is closed, or through the front of his mouth when his mouth is open. That's how hard it is. Meredith, uh, in his report, also ran the numbers on the campaign, noting that... uh, while a quarter of his detachment's ammunition had been used, it had resulted in the deaths of, well, between 500 and 300 emus out of the 20,000 that were infesting the wheat fields. That's not such a great a return on the investment. However, he also highlighted another important and much more positive fact about the campaign, as much of a failure as it may have been with actually, you know, killing emus. His division, while deployed, had suffered no casualties throughout the entire conflict. But as you might imagine, it was an absolute disaster for the army and the government, and also not just on the battlefield, I'm not just talking about the war itself, because the papers had a field day. They splashed great big headlines about this utter schmozzle of a campaign that was waged by the Australian army against, let's not forget, against an agricultural pest. Worse still, because of how this whole thing was reported, public sentiment turned against the government and the army as the plight of the emus, it actually engendered real sympathy for, for them as well. So it was, it, they, they, they lost the battle on the battlefield, but they also lost the battle in the hearts and minds of the Australian people. Nonetheless, the farmers continued to have their lands invaded by more and more emus who, you know, came in search of a free feed and something to drink here. And so ultimately, even after hostilities against the emus had been suspended, Spurred on by everyone from the farmers to the Premier of Western Australia, all the way back up to Sir George Pearce himself, Major Meredith was redeployed to face the scourge of the Wheat Belt once again. Uh, Interestingly enough, the Australian Army didn't want to let him go and take up the fight again. They initially agreed only to uh, to re-lend the guns to to the West Australian State Government. But Meredith ended up back in the trenches because, and this is not a joke, there was no one else in the entire state with his experience, which I think was, yes, uh, unquestionably true. Anyway, 
Major Meredith and his contingent, they continue to blade uh, to, to wage a bloody campaign of retribution against the emus until the 10th of December in 1932, when Meredith was finally recalled from duty. He wrote another report. This one was a little more fruitful than the last. He claimed that 986 emus had been slain at the cost of 9,860 rounds. Uh, which was which meant it was a very neat 10 rounds per dead emu. Uh, but all the same, this figure represented less than 5% of the total emu population in the area, and the depredations of these malignant birds went largely unchecked for a long while after the guns fell silent. The Great Emu War was a dismal failure in the eyes of everyone and brought enormous shame to the brief but otherwise proud history of the Australian Army at the time, with the full impact of its defeat coming at the hands of overgrown, flightless birds. Uh, the famous ornithologist Dominic Severnti, he, w- he went on to write a retrospective of the war many years later, and he had this to say. <clears throat> the machine gunner's dreams of point-blank fire into serried masses of emus were soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics, and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. A crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat area after about a month. Sir George Pierce became known as the Minister for the Emu War, and you can just imagine how he felt when he went into work every morning at Parliament House, having to walk under the emu on the Australian coat of arms just to get to his office, having it look down with a smug leer of self-satisfaction. And the ridicule didn't stop with a nickname either. In a parliamentary session during the war, one of Pierce's colleagues asked if any medals would be struck for the Great Emu War, and another quipped that if so, they should probably go to the emus, as they had won every round so far. Ultimately, however, we did manage to find a solution to the emu incursions in the wheat fields of Western Australia. An existing bounty system was improved and augmented, and the government authorised the release of large amounts of ammunition to the farmers themselves, which uh, was a lot more effective than the military had been. But, best of all, after a military deployment and a campaign, after tens of thousands of rounds and thousands of dead emus, after an utterly humiliating farce that means that we as a nation have to deal with having lost a war to a pack of bloody emus, after all of this, the farmers in Western Australia finally came up with a way to keep their crops safe from emus once and for all. And they did this at long last by building a large fence. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Great Emu War. Thanks for hanging out and having a listen to it. I did, I did enjoy... It was a lot of fun to read about and, you know, obviously, you know, tell this story, but even, even if it did ignite a deep burning pit of shame within the very core of my being but that's that's by the by anyway going to close out the show with the normal boring housekeeping stuff uh halfhousehistory.net is the website for uh for the the show you can find all the episodes there and also links to subscribe via um uh via spotify and itunes and you can also get in touch with the show send me through a message there's a contact form and uh, you can get in touch maybe suggest an episode like ray did uh, with this one I'd, I'd love to hear from you what what your thoughts were that sort of stuff also if you get a sec if you wouldn't mind doing me a favor just write an itunes review apparently that that is very good algorithmically speaking so i appreciate everyone who's uh, who's doing that for me you can support the show financially on patreon there's already 100 or so people doing that thank you so much for that those uh, those people have all been the beneficiaries of uh, of various uh, 
benefits. Should have thought of a different word for that there. Whoops. Uh, and uh, you, of course, can go and sign up and uh, and you'll receive my uh, eternal gratitude and eternal disbelief along with various tiers of, of, of different awards. So go and have a look at that if you're, if you're interested. And uh, more than anything else, really, just thank you. Thank you for listening to this stupid podcast. Whether you're an old listener, you've been here all 75 episodes, or you're a new listener, welcome. By all means, welcome. It's, it's so good to have you along. Just thanks for being Thanks for being part of this stupid history podcast and listening to me, uh, listen to me go on about whatever it is every week. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's really incredible to be able to do this. And yeah, thanks for being part of it. Anyway, that's it for me this week. Closing things out as usual with a question posed on Reddit. Reddit historian Sith Lord Jar Jar asks, "Does the Great Emu War count as an actual war? I want to know if my pet emu is qualified for a veteran discount." 